Today we're going to look at um, the divine nature of God and how we're going to do this in 50 minutes. I'm not sure. We'll do our best. Um, So let's pray for a moment and let's get into this really all-important topic. Our Father, we thank you today for the opportunity to look to your word and to get just a little glimpse from a human standpoint of who you are, the nature of our God that has been so, you've been so gracious and kind to reach down through the revelation of the word, through the revelation of Christ, to show us yourself. And so we would simply reflect the truths about you back to you this day. Help this time not just to be a time of learning, but a time of worship, Lord, that as our minds comprehend your greatness and your fullness, that we would be transformed more and more into those that would worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, you ready? We're going to do a lot. So we're going to look today at the divine nature, and um, we'll see if we can get through all of this. I am not above just stopping and saying we need to finish this next time, Um, but uh, this is theoretically uh, Module 1, Session 9, Theology Proper 2 on the divine nature. So we're going to start with the fact that God is personal, and we have to start here because... um, That's what separates him, one of the aspects that separates him from all false gods. Our God is personal. False gods are made up. They're not personal. But this also helps us understand that God is not just an inanimate force of some sort, uh, as as Buddhists would, would conceptualize God, as other religions would conceptualize some sort of superior being. He is personal means he has the attributes of personhood. And so let's just walk through some of those. He has intellect. God knows and understands himself. He understands his creation. And even under that, we could say that he has knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. There's knowledge. He has wisdom in his own creation. Psalm 104, 24, O Lord, how manifest, how manifold rather are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And when somebody asks you, well, how did God make everything? I don't know, but it was wise. However, he did it. It was in his wisdom, Psalm 104. And then there's his wisdom and salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, 24 and 25, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so this is an interesting way of describing God that even if God had something, some attribute that could be considered weak, his weakest attributes are stronger than the strongest of men. And so it's just a a way of relating us to God. So he has intellect, superior intellect. He has a will. God acts with a sense of plan and purpose. He has volition. He does what he wants to do, and he always acts in accordance with his will. He does not act in a reactive way. And honestly, a reactive God is the God that American evangelicalism tends to portray him as. That if I will just do certain things, um, he will do things for me. Now, that brings up the question, does prayer work? Yes, it does. That's another topic for another day. But God is not reactive. He's not reactive. Your prayers work because God said they would. But he didn't react. He didn't go, oh, it's a good thing they prayed for this because I couldn't have done anything. I would have been helpless. 
He has a will. And what is the ultimate purpose of his will? The ultimate purpose of his will is his own glory. And that's what separates uh, us as dispensationalists from some other uh, camps in theology. I'll explain that in a moment. But he does everything for his own glory. Redemption is for his own glory. This is a new concept, I think, to, to most Christians, honestly, that redemption, salvation, wasn't for you. It was for him. We just happen to be the beneficiaries. But Ephesians 1, 5, and 6 He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the purpose of salvation. Ephesians 3.11, this was according to the eternal purpose which he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So redemption was for his glory. Creation was for his glory. Isaiah 43.1, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. He created Israel. He created all things for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, by the way, when somebody says, why should I worship God? Your answer can be because he created you for his glory and you're not glorifying him with your life. Your behavior, your rejection of him, your failure to worship his son does not glorify him. You are failing in the created purpose for which God made you. So that's a, that's a good answer. I gave that answer to somebody once and they kind of looked wide-eyed. I'm failing God? Yep, pretty much every day. Creation was for his glory. So he has intellect, he has will, and that will is for his own glory. Um, what separates us uh, in, in a very technical fashion, maybe for, from some other theological systems, um, is that some would uh, say, and I think, I think it's fair to say in the um, covenant theology camp, they would say that soteriology, salvation, is really the ultimate, the ultimate theology that we study uh, other than the theology of God himself. We would say slightly differently that doxology, the glory of God, is the ultimate study. Soteriology simply contributes to the glory of God. So, in other words, we want to put glory first, that our salvation is an expression of God glorifying himself. It is not the ultimate expression. It is one of many. Uh, Why is that important? Well, because God is also glorified in his wrath. He is glorified in the other attributes, the other parts of himself as well. So, just a little side note there. God is personal with his intellect, his will, and he has emotions. God has emotions. I think it's the next slide. There we go. He has emotions. He displays a disposition. Emotions, acts of the will, and emotions appropriate to interpersonal relationships. You can read about the emotions of God all through Scripture. That um, uh, in Ephesians 4, we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. God uh, speaks of himself as being filled with joy when his children obey him. And so he has emotion. Now, we don't want to take that too far to think that God only feels one emotion at a time because if the Holy Spirit is grieved every time in context you use your tongue wrong, then he's grieved all the time. And we think, wow, we have a clinically depressed God. That's not the case, but he does, he does feel emotion. That doesn't put him on the level of humanity. It just it, We're designed after him, not the other way around. So he has emotions. He has self-consciousness. God reveals himself as a unique person, not an impersonal force. He has a name. 
He identifies himself by name. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In fact, he's jealous for his name because his name encapsulates his identity. There is no other God besides me. He says this often in the Old Testament. That you can't attribute his qualities to anybody else, to anything else. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So he has intellect, will, emotions, self-consciousness, and he has relatedness. Relatedness. God enters into relationship with other persons, which is phenomenal because he doesn't need those relationships. God is interrelated within himself. We'll talk about that in the Trinity section in a moment. But he chooses to enter into relationships with other persons when he himself has no need for those relationships. But he makes covenants with, with people. He made, for example, the Abrahamic covenant, all these unconditional promises to Abraham. And what did Abraham do to deserve that? Nothing. God just did it. He hears prayers. Isn't it amazing that your Christian faith isn't just, well, God knows what you need, but don't ever talk to him because that would be rude. No, your faith is pray and talk to him and interact with your relatable God. He blesses the obedient and he judges the rebellious. That's what you do in the relationship. So he is personal. <clears throat> and sometimes uh, those of us who like to study theology, it can be easy to forget, oh yeah, God is a person. He is not a topic of study. He is a person. Then we move on to the fact that God is an infinite spirit. He is what theologians call non-corporeal, meaning he doesn't include his existence doesn't include a body. Now, before you think that we're not Trinitarian, just hold on for a minute. We start with this basic understanding. God is spirit. He is spirit. John 4:24 he is spirit as opposed to being embodied. Yes, Jesus is God, but all of God is not confined to the body of Jesus. If we can put it that way, we're going to get a little bit theoretical here. But God is spirit. Now, that's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to grasp an invisible God. Um, his, his existence is non-material. Luke twenty four thirty nine. Jesus, the material manifestation of God, he said, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. But then he explains, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now, why is this important? Well, first of all, it's important because this is just who God is, but it's also important. Remember, the Old Testament in particular is always set in the context of God convincing his people that he is not like all the pagan gods and the nations that surround them. And what are the pagan gods like? Supposedly, according to the myths and legends, the pagan gods are essentially uh, people-type beings that have flesh and blood. They just dwell other places. But God is not that way. Now, why is this so hard for us to understand? Because God, in his wisdom, made us with a physical body. He made us. We are corporeal. We do have a body. Um, but the first reality in all of everything, the first reality is that God is spirit. That's where everything started. And so um, that's not somehow an incomplete vision of God. That is the whole vision of God. We would also say that God is unextended. What does this mean? It means he doesn't take up space. 
He doesn't take up space, and yet God is present in space. He's personally present. He's omnipresent, everywhere present. And so uh, we take up space, no matter how hard we try. We, we take up a little bit of space. God takes up no space, and yet he inhabits every space. He's invisible. He can't be perceived by physical eyes. He's invisible in his essence. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that he alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. By the way, the invisibility of God, this is the basis for the prohibition of idolatry. If you haven't seen God, how can you make a representation of him? Deuteronomy 4.15, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, out of the midst of the fire. He says, don't make images. I, I, have, I have pastor friends who don't even like uh, images of Christ put up in the church. That's a big deal to them, that we worship a God who has never been seen, and you've never seen Jesus either, so you can't draw a picture of him. So that's, that's a view that some have. But praise the Lord, Jesus is the one who makes God visible. He is the one who manifests God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And what did Jesus say about himself? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's right. John 14.9 is where Jesus says this. And he, in fact, he kind of chastises Philip. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so Jesus makes God visible, but we want to be very clear about this. Jesus is not the reflection of God. Jesus is God. There's a, there's a big difference. That's, that's the difference between the sun and the moon. The moon reflects light from the sun. The moon doesn't have its own light, but the Son of God is not only the manifestation of God, He is God. And so there's a, there's a clear difference there. So we want to be careful to not simply say that Jesus reflects the light of God, because anybody can do that with a mirror, but uh, He is God Himself. By the way, Jesus isn't the only one who makes God visible. We're called to make God visible too. How's that for pressure? 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So now the question is, you know, we don't manifest God as God. We manifest God as a reflection. We're the reflection. We're the mirror. In John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We see also biblical references to people seeing God um, and we're doing that a lot with the angel of the Lord study right now. Um, either call those Christophanies, if it's a, a manifestation of Christ, or a theophany, just a general manifestation of God. Um, but that's not seeing God in his essence. That is seeing the manifestation of God. By the way, uh, the theological term Christophany is a bit of a misnomer. Christ is Greek for Messiah, and by definition, Messiah is one who comes. And so if Messiah hasn't come yet, um, technically he's not filling the office of Christ yet, so I'd prefer to call it a Jesusophany, but that doesn't really sound as good as Christophany, so we'll stick with Christophany. What else do we know about God? As an infinite spirit, he is incorruptible. 
This is important. God cannot age. He cannot decay. The second law of thermodynamics does not apply to God. That is the law that says that all things tend to degrade and decay over time. If you don't believe in the second law of thermodynamics, just go to central Texas where I used to live and look at the driveways of people with cars that have been sitting there for 15 and 20 years. They have decayed. They have gone down. Don't mow your lawn for a year. Don't repair anything in your house and just see what happens. So everything in creation because of sin is subject to decay. Uh, you, you turn 18, you look in the mirror, you say, I look good. And then it's, you're done after that. You're going downhill. It's, and your brain hasn't even developed yet. And so by the time your brain develops and you're halfway smart, your body's already halfway shot. We're, we, cor- we are corruptible. But God doesn't age which has some amazing implications, by the way. God doesn't learn. God doesn't grow. God doesn't add to himself. And so all of the things about God that are incorruptible, it just will kind of blow your mind if you think through them. He's indivisible. He's not made up of parts. He's not a composite of other things. All of God's attributes describe all of God. He's not partly loving and partly wrathful. He is all loving and all wrathful. He's all of those things. All of his attributes describe all of God. And he is self-existent. He's self-existent. He can't be put out of existence. And his existence isn't contingent on anything else. Um, What is your existence contingent upon? Air, food, water, a space to be. All of those things. Um, Power, you need fuel. God is self-empowered. He powers himself. Um, this is the classical attribute of aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. The aseity of God says that he's self-existent. He is completely self-perpetuating. He can't be out of existence. It's not possible. That's why Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Only an idiot would say that. So, that is the infinite spirit of God. Now, let's uh, try to tackle this. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, it's ridiculous to even do this topic in 10 minutes. And that is, God is a trinity. I apologize in advance that we can't adequately deal with this. But we'll just hit a few little high points. God is tripersonal. Now, I, I'm going to just say this right now. All of our efforts to use metaphors and word pictures to describe God fall short. I never want to hear anybody at Grace Bible Church say God is like an egg. He has the yolk and the white and the shell. No, he's not. I will throw an egg at the next person who says that. There is no metaphor to describe the Trinity. It doesn't exist. I understand our efforts to try to describe a three in one and a one in three but they all fall short. So if you want to use the egg metaphor, that's fine. Just make sure I'm not in the room when you do it. So let's take apart some of, these, some of the things we do know. We do know about the unity of God, the oneness of God. We could define this this way. There is but one essence in the Godhead, and this one essence wholly and equally pervades each of the three persons in the Godhead without division or multiplication. I'll read that one more time. There is but one essence in the Godhead, And this one essence wholly and equally pervades each of the three persons in the Godhead without division or multiplication. So how might we try to explain this? Well, a couple of different ways. The whole essence of God is in each Trinitarian person. All of God 
is in the Spirit. All of God is in the Father. All of God is in the Son. The essence of God, though, is capable of distinctions. It is, it is the idea of a oneness that contains three. I think one of the best explanations I've ever heard, it's simple, is that God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Now, let me time out right here and let's apply this for a moment to your prayer life. How many times have you ever heard somebody say, thank you, Father, for dying on the cross for my sins? The Father did not die on the cross for your sins. The Son did. I understand there's no, there's no ill intent there. Um, thank you, Spirit, for sending Jesus. I've heard that prayer in charismatic circles. The Spirit did not send Jesus. Uh, Jesus actually sent the Spirit. So we want to make those distinctions. Why? Because the Bible makes those distinctions and God wants us to make those distinctions. What does the Bible say about this teaching? Let's just start broad here. There are three persons. Each of the three persons is God and the three persons are one God. The oneness of God is his essence. If it sounds like we're just kind of repeating ourselves, that's about all we can do. And we, we just keep trying to understand this. His essence subsists in the three persons. The Father is God. That's a given in Scripture. That, everybody understands that. The Son is God. John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Incidentally, the, uh, the New World Translation for the Jehovah's Witnesses, they add one little indefinite article there because it messes up their bad theology. They say the Word was a God. But that's not, in, that's not in the original. His word was God. Titus 2.13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's listed as God. And Hebrews 1.8. Hebrews 1.8, by the way, one of the clearest deity of Christ verses in all of the New Testament. And the reason is you can establish very clearly in verses 5, 6, and 7 that it is God speaking. God speaks in verse 5, God speaks in verse 6, God speaks in verse 7, and in verse 8, but of the Son, He, God, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God the Father saying of the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Holy Spirit is God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So we have the clear teaching in Scripture. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But also we understand that there's only one God. There's just one. The Father and the Son are one. John 10, I and, John 10, 30 through 33, I and the Father are one. Jesus says this repeatedly. The Father and the Spirit are one. 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? There's the, the, the unity there. The Son and the Spirit are one. Romans 8, 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. How does that work? How does it work that Jesus Christ, who is human and always will be, so that he will always be the bridge between us and God the Father, he is human. His human body, according to um, most estimates, he was between... 5'4 and 5'7. He's just a regular sized guy for his time. And yet, because he is fully God, he is omnipresent, he is everywhere present, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. 
So don't think that Jesus is just up in heaven. Yes, Jesus is up in heaven, but he's omnipresent also. I find that very comforting to know like what he told the the disciples. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come back to you. He said that in John 16. How did he come back? He came back in the spirit of God. He is the spirit of Christ. So we have the spirit and the son are one. And then, of course, the father, son and spirit are one. John 14, 16 through 23 Somewhere in that section there, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. So we just talked about that. So that's just the the overall teaching on the oneness of God, the unity of God. Let's look at the threeness of God, though. The Trinity. Some like the the phrase, the triunity. I think that's that's a good phrase, but traditionally we say the Trinity. Now, just a little caution here. A lot of nominally Orthodox Christians in practice, they actually regard God the Father as God, Jesus as divine, but somewhat inferior, and the Holy Spirit as a distant impersonal force, sometimes referred to as it. I always am grieved when I hear professing Christians refer to the Holy Spirit as it. How would you like to be referred to as it? Would you like to meet my wife? Here it is. See how far that gets you. But let's look at some biblical evidences for Trinitarianism. And if we have time, I want to talk a little bit about abuses of the Trinity. It's not in my notes, but I just want to talk about that briefly. Biblical evidences for Trinitarianism. The Old Testament hints at a divine threeness. It just hints at it. There's plural pronouns used of God. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Isaiah 6, 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom, who will go for us? And this is the plural noun Elohim. Now, this could be what's called a plural of majesty, a plural of quantity, just meaning that it makes something bigger. But Israel's kings, for example, they were never addressed with the plural of majesty. So this is something unique to God. And it is, it is technically correct to use it as a plural. The Trinity can be seen in shadowy form, at least two out of three together in the same passage in the Old Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is God speaking to God. You have Isaiah 48, 16. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. That is all three members of the Trinity in one verse. I showed this verse to a Jewish uh, woman who was uh, doing dry cleaning for me years ago when I was in seminary. And I, I asked her, what do you think about the New Testament? She said, oh, and she, no, no New Testament. So I showed her Isaiah forty-eight sixteen, And she goes, well, there must be some mistake. Had to be a mistake in the text because she knew, she knew exactly what it said, that there were three persons to the one God. Isaiah 61, 1 through 7, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Jesus in Luke chapter 4 identifies himself as the speaker in Isaiah 61. So can you build a complete doctrine of the Trinity on Old Testament teaching? You can't. 
We need the revelation of the New Testament. But once you have the revelation of the New Testament, it doesn't change anything in the Old Testament. We don't believe in New Testament priority where uh, the Old Testament interpretation now changes. It just shines this spotlight. Elohim, a plural God. Of course that makes sense. Of course that makes sense. So what is then our New Testament understanding of the Trinity, the threeness of God? Well, there's some direct references. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's clear enough. That's a formula. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Very clear, just compact Trinitarian reference there. There are also indirect references, and, and we're just hitting high points. The, the Trinity, is, if you get your Bible wet and wring it out, it just it bleeds Trinity everywhere. But Romans fifteen sixteen, Paul says that he is to be a minister of, the, of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Christ Jesus, the gospel of God the Father, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And I gave you a couple of other references there. Did I? Yes. 2 Corinthians 1, 21, Ephesians 2, 18. And then you have what some have called the Trinitarian gospel, that if you didn't get it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can't avoid the Trinity in John's gospel. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. There you have God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit. John 16, 13 through 15, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So those are, those are obvious references there to the, to the Trinity. Let me just take a little side note here and talk about abuses of Trinitarian doctrine. Um, primarily, the way the doctrine of the Trinity has, has been abused has to do with a wrong priority or a wrong what we call functional order, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But I want to give you a great example. Um, there is a, there is a, a uh, fellowship of a group of churches. You'll know what I'm talking about, but I won't say it on the recording. There's a group of churches uh, through whom even some of you have come to faith in Christ. I thank the Lord that they have a, a proper view of the gospel for the most part. But their symbol of this group of churches is a dove. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing wrong with that inherently. We love doves. You know, that, that makes sense. But traditionally, when you have that dove made into a physical sign, this is very, very symbolic to me. Do you know what they use to hold up the picture of the dove? They use a cross. And the dove covers the cross. I find that very symbolic because it's the other way around. The Holy Spirit points us to the cross. Now, if they would just change it a little bit and have the cross center stage and the dove off to the side pointing to Christ... Now you have a proper ontology. You have a proper uh, ordering of 
the Trinity. Not that one is better or different in quality or essence than the other, but there is a functional uh, subordination. There is a functional order. The Spirit is never said to, or rather Christ never says, I'm here to point you to the Spirit. I'm here to point you to the power of the Spirit. I'm here to have you focus on the Spirit because where the abuse comes in is now the Spirit of God becomes the sole focus and becomes abused in the sense of the Spirit is just here to give me things and to bless me and to give me experiences and money and wealth and and to make me feel spiritual and to make me say gibberish that I think is some sort of speaking in tongues. And it's all about the Spirit and what gets lost is the gospel. The gospel is lost now for the sake of using the Spirit of God in a way that maligns Him, blasphemes Him, to say we will elevate the Spirit above all things. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said that the Spirit points to Him. We are a Christian church, not a spirit church. Does that make sense? We are little Christs, Christians, not little spirits. Well, we will be little spirits when we die, but that's another issue. Now, so listen carefully. The Trinity is not just a doctrinal uh, kind of theoretical issue. It forms how we think of God. Now, when we get to the, to the ontological functional uh, order of the Trinity, that'll make a little more sense. So I just wanted to say that. We want to be very careful. We are Trinitarian. We worship God the Father. We worship God the Son. We worship God the Spirit. But the wishes of God the Father and God the Spirit are that we view our Lord Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we worship Trinitarian, uh, we worship a Trinitarian God by focusing on Christ. Not that we ignore the Father or ignore the Spirit. Which leads me to another abuse of another kind. By show of hands, how many of you have ever been taught, I won't ask if you believe, Ever been taught that you should only pray to God the Father but not God the Son, God the Spirit? How many have ever heard that? Oh, good. We're well taught. That's awesome. I appreciate that. That's actually a very common teaching in American evangelicalism that you pray to God the Father through the Son by means of the Spirit or however they want to phrase it. That's ridiculous. You pray to God the Father, you pray to God the Son, you pray to God the Spirit. And some will, some will cite the Lord's Prayer that the Lord said, um, this is how you should pray, our Father who is in heaven. He didn't say, but don't talk to me. I never want to hear from you again. Once I ascend into heaven, don't speak to me. Who should you be praying to for the fruit of the Spirit? How about the Spirit? Lord, help me right now to show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's a great prayer. All right, I will step off of the, uh, the soapbox now and let's get to the Trinity and the New Covenant. This is where, where it becomes very relevant for us in how we understand our relationship to the Lord. Understanding of the Trinity can't be fully accommodated under the Old Covenant framework because God put a lot of focus on Israel just helping them understand there is one God Remember, we talked about this last time, the purpose of Genesis 1, the primary purpose of Genesis 1 is to convince Israel who the true creator of all things really is, that there is one God. We even looked at the the Shema, the hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, how confusing would it have been when he's trying to convince Israel that the Lord is one to also add, but he's also three. Not the right time. 
And so God reveals himself that there is a singular God, a singular God, a singular God. But then in the context of the new covenant, we get new revelation. The Trinity is assumed right at the very beginning of the New Testament. It happens almost instantly in that page turn from Malachi to Matthew. Instantly we get to the Trinity. Jesus is presented in the Gospels as God in the flesh. Matthew one twenty three: the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Right there, you have the Trinity. Mark 2, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. That was his whole point of that miracle. The Holy Spirit is revealed in more clarity than Ever before, right at the very early outset of the ministry of Christ, Matthew one twenty. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord, an angel, not the angel, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Very clear. Matthew 3.11, Jesus, or this is John the Baptist, rather, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then, of course, you have the obvious reference in Matthew 3.16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, not in front of him, on him. And then we have some other references you could look at also, John fourteen fifteen through 17, and other verses in John 16 as well. And so the Trinity seems to belong to the inner life of God, known only by those who share that life. Can you, as, a, as an unbeliever, fully understand the Trinity? Not to the, not to the degree that a Christian can. We, we have a fuller understanding. So now let's talk about what we got to earlier, the functional order of the Trinity. And this is where people get nervous. Because functional order, whenever you use the word order, that starts to sound like one is better or more important or different in essence than the other. So we start with what theologians call the ontological trinity. The ontology is just the study of existence, the study of being. So the ontological trinity, that concept says that there is equality of being, equality of essence in the persons of the trinity. But then we can make a distinction that some have called the economical or the functional trinity. Economical is not talking about money. In economy, uh, it talks about in order of doing things. So economical trinity, the functional subordination in the Godhead seen in Scripture. Why did the Son of God come to earth? For God so loved the world that he, what? Gave his only Son. God the Son came to earth because God the Father sent him. The Spirit came to earth. Why? Because the Son sent him. Now, this doesn't come from an ontological difference. This isn't that God the Father is slightly more powerful than God the Son, who is slightly more powerful than God the Spirit. That's not the case at all. It is a functional order. There's a difference in roles. Um, we're, we try to be very clear about this when we teach on marriage. Is it right to teach that wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord? Yes. Is it right to teach because you're of a lesser essence than your husband? No, that's absolutely wrong. Fully equal as made in the image of God, fully equal as those loved by God. 
and yet there's a functional difference. You would never say that your child is lesser than you, but you would always say your child will obey you. So where do we get the idea of a son obeying his father? That's not an invention. That's what has always been. Now, there's a whole debate about that called the eternal sonship of Christ. I do subscribe to eternal sonship. God has always been God the Son. There, there hasn't ever been a time where the second member of the Trinity was not the Son of God. But there is a, a functional order. 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And what does this look like? How does it manifest itself? Well, we could go to the Garden of Gethsemane to think about how this manifests itself. The Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully capable of literally incinerating the whole world, the whole universe at that moment if he wanted to, bending the knee to his Father and saying, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's how that works out. God the Son, so perfectly obedient, so perfectly loving toward his Father that he will do anything his Father asks, even and up to the cross. That's the functional order of the Trinity. And that is the basis for all of our human relationships. The Trinity is the model by which we operate. There's Trinity. I wonder if we can do holiness in the next eight minutes. God is holy. I think it's, and we've talked about this before, I think a lot of uh, times we hear the holiness of God talked about as one of his attributes, one of his descriptors. I think a better approach, an alternative approach at least, is to think of God's holiness as being expressed and worked out in all of his attributes. That his love, his wrath, his graciousness, his mercy, his kindness, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omnisapience, his his all-wise nature, all of those together encompass his holiness. In the Old Testament, the, the main word for holy or holiness, kodesh, in the ancient Near Eastern background, in other cultures, if you use that type of word, they would simply say that's something that's divine as opposed to human that it speaks of something that is divine, that is not in the same realm as us as human beings. The noun form of Kodesh, it, it speaks of the essential nature that belongs to all that God is, all of his activity, all that is distinct from everything else. So a great way to think of holiness in the Old Testament is that God is other. He is just other. There is God and there is everything else. And he is other than that which is common or profane. In the New Testament... You have the important words hagias, hagiazo. Um, these speak of being set apart, being sacred, being pure. And this is a quality possessed by things or persons that could approach divinity. We have the Father spoken of as holy, John 17. The Son spoken of as holy in Mark 1, Luke 1. You have the Spirit spoken of as holy. <clears throat> but there's an interesting word uh, that is derived from those Greek words for Holy, and that is the word saint. That we are all saints. We are the ones who have been made apart. We have been those made able to approach the holiness of God. And so um, when somebody says, what does it mean to be sanctified? You can almost say it's to be saintified. That I've been made into one who is able to approach God. 
and, and we're just touching on this. We, we've talked about holiness a, a lot, but I think there's, there's a, a good way to think about holiness. There's many, many good ways. This is one of them. And that is to have two connotations or meanings of holiness. And these are good broad categories. The first connotation of holiness we would call majesty holiness. And that is simply the idea that God is metaphysically separate from, he is greater than anyone or anything else without, without speaking of morality necessarily. Because when we think of holiness, we think of morality a lot. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. His majesty holiness does include that Old Testament Kodesh idea of other, of separateness. It includes the New Testament Hagias idea of purity, of the, the fact that he's different from everything else. The majesty holiness of God says that he is unapproachable. You can't approach him, which is the amazing thing about the Lord Jesus Christ who has made a bridge, made a way for us to approach him who is, by definition, unapproachable. That's the, the tremendous miracle of salvation. So there's his majesty holiness. And let me just take a little sidestep here for just a moment. Number one theological issue in 2020 has been ecclesiology, the study of the church. Because our metal has been tested as to what view of the church we have. I'm going to tell you, it's a very simple proposition here. The higher your view of God, the higher your view will be of the church of God. If God is unapproachable, if God is separate and he is bigger and he is more important in every way possible, what about those who represent him in the way that we're supposed to, the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people? As your view of God goes up, naturally your view of the church should go up. And if you have a low and an unimportant view of the church, what does that say about your view of God? It says that your view of God is low as well. And so we want, to be, we want to elevate our theology proper, our view of God, because as our view of God goes up and up and up and up, then of course our view of God's people goes up and up and up. I'd encourage you to go online sometime and just Google R.C. Sproul and his view of church buildings. And you'll find a couple of interesting articles. R.C. Sproul and his view of church buildings, the church that he pastored for years, um, their, their design was theological in nature. It was designed so that you walk in and you are beginning to sense that you are coming into a special sacred space. It was designed like, like old school churches with super high ceilings. Why? Because God is not an eight-foot ceiling. It was designed to lift your affections upward. You can look at this all you want. Um, what happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s? Church buildings now became man-centered instead of God-centered. Let's make it something that we really like. And that's, that's fine. But now theology actually affected, uh, affected architecture. And it affected how we think about the church. The design of pulpits, for example, reflects our view of God. 
You ever seen Martin Luther's pulpit? Google a picture of Martin Luther's pulpit. It looks like a giant wine glass. And he would climb this little set of stairs and he's way up above you and, and drawings and renderings of this, this pulpit has him over people with the word of God, overwhelming them with truth. Hit the seeker-sensitive movement. Started really in the 60s, got going somewhat in the 70s, 80s. It was huge. What's the pulpit now? Well, let's get rid of it altogether and put the park bench up there, first of all, because that's how God wants to relate to us, right, with a bunch of pigeons. Or let's put a clear pulpit. What is the symbolism of a clear pulpit? I'm not saying it's inherently uh, sinful, but there is a symbolism behind it. The symbolism of a clear pulpit is that the person you're trying to relate to is the pastor. No, the person you're trying to relate to is God. The pastor is simply the means. The only reason our pulpit isn't bigger is because our room doesn't have enough room. If I had it my way, our pulpit would be nine feet long and would look like a battleship. Because what does it say about the word of God? I preached at a church in England and this church had 15 steps it took to get to the pulpit. I mean, I'm kind of afraid of heights. I'm going, I don't know if I can preach up here. And I asked one of the elders who was not a preaching elder. I said, now, how do I get up there? And he said, you know, go through this little gate. And I asked him another question. He says, well, I've never been up there. I said, oh, really? He said, no, I'm not the preacher. I don't go to that place. What was that? That wasn't just a weird view of pulpits. That was a view of God that was so high that it was reflected in his view of the church, which is reflected in his view of the preached word. It it bled into everything. So all that is a huge digression to say, if you want a proper view of the church, have a proper view of God first. And then your view of the church will just follow. It'll be natural. Does that make sense? Soapbox number two, we are done. One more connotation of holiness. And this is the one we think of mostly, especially when we read in the Bible, be holy because I am holy. This is what we're talking about in purity holiness. This is how holiness works itself out ethically works itself out in behavior. In God, God is morally separate from, he's purer than everything else, everyone else. He has an inviolable purity. When Satan was tempting Jesus Christ, was there any chance whatsoever that Jesus would fall to that temptation? There was no chance because Jesus is holy and he has an inviolable purity. In his humanity, the power of the Holy Spirit helped him, but Jesus was never going to fail. You don't have to read Matthew 4 and keep your fingers crossed and hope it turns out right. He is morally pure. He is separate from everything. It speaks of his separation from moral wickedness. He does nothing that is evil. His eyes cannot even look upon evil. And that brings us to us then, 1 Peter 1.15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So in other words, as you worship the one who has majesty holiness and purity holiness, you can never have majesty holiness, but you are called to purity holiness because of majesty holiness. God is morally separate from, purer than everything else, everyone else, and because of that, we are to be also. That's great motivation. It's really a very simple idea. What are, what are children naturally born wanting to do? They want, they're born wanting to be like their parents. Isn't that a great thing? Especially if you're a mediocre person like me. It's like, wow, my kids want to be like me. That's, that's odd. 
we're built that way because God wants us ultimately to um, aspire to be like him, to aspire to holiness. Now, we can't do that. We can't be holy. We're commanded to be holy, but we fail in that all the time. That is our standard. So thankfully, um, God has promised us that when we see Christ, we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And so he will finish that process. Isn't that an amazing thought to think that there will be a day when you are utterly, completely pure? Wow. I mean, you haven't been completely pure in the last 50 minutes we've been in here. We're just not. But someday, the majesty and the purity, holiness of God will work itself out in your life such that you shed every sinful thought, deed, and word forever. That's amazing. So isn't it worth it to think on the holiness of God and to aspire toward him? All right, I'm very proud of you. You did it. We got through some big, big concepts here in the um, nature of God. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. These words of these last 50 minutes or so have been inadequate. They haven't been enough. They haven't been sufficient. How could we possibly approach our God who is Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one, one in three, how could we approach your holiness, your majesty, holiness, your purity, holiness, how could we understand these things? Maybe it helps us understand a little bit better, Lord, the end of Psalm 16, that at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That as we learn more of you, Lord, we just relish and delight in the glories of our God. And we can do that now to a certain degree through your word, through the fellowship of the body, through the songs that we sing. And I pray, Lord, that that would be the case the rest of this Lord's Day, that we would seek after you, that we would seek your holiness so that we too would be holy as you are holy, sanctified by the Spirit, saved by the blood of the Son, all by the plan of the Father. And we thank you in Christ's name, amen.